Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. Today, we are joined by Philip Baim. He studied at the State Academy of Theater in Warsaw, Poland, and has directed extensively on both sides of the Atlantic. He is, for our purposes, most relevant to our discussion today, is a translator. He's translated more than 30 novels and plays, mostly by German and Polish writers. He is also... Uh, a founder or co-founder of the Upstream Theater in St. Louis, Missouri, which he founded in 2004. And his honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship and two NEA Fellowships, National Endowment for the Arts, and numerous awards for his translations. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me. So the reason I invited you today is to discuss a novel that you translated Uh, in the last few years. That was published in 2019. Originally published in 1940, it is Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. And thanks for uh, discussing this uh, because I I think it's an important book and no doubt you do as well. And so what I want to do is begin by talking about uh, the importance of this novel. And let's start with the plot first and foremost. Uh, Darkness at Noon sounds like an oxymoron, but it applies to this kind of dystopian, uh, Soviet-like authoritarian state that's depicted in the novel. You want to give us a brief outline of the plot? Sure. Uh, The the plot centers on the imprisonment and trial of a fictional character who is modeled after one of the leading old guard figures in the uh, a Bolshevik, uh, one of the old guard Bolsheviks uh, that had spearheaded the Russian Revolution and then had set about forming the Soviet state. Uh, and after the death of Lenin in the mid-20s and the subsequent back and forth within the Politburo uh, infighting in the various factions, as Stalin consolidated power, he began to purge off any number of these uh, old guard uh, Bolsheviks. Uh, And this fictional character, Rubashov, uh, is an amalgamation of several of those. Uh, And while the book does not specifically state that it takes place in the Soviet Union, uh, for all intents and purposes, that's that's the the setting. Uh, So we are introduced to Rubashov in the first chapter. He has just been imprisoned and the book takes place. It sounds like not a very thrilling plot because he's there's not the action that precedes. The, 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 there's no chase scene or anything. He is in prison. Uh, the cell door is is shutting behind him as the book begins. Uh, there are there are several interrogations, and there are his ruminations. And the book weaves together these these months in prison, uh, the daily life. Uh, uh, that he experienced in prison 
uh, with these more philosophical ruminations as well as some flashbacks into his deeds uh, as a leading uh, member of the party. So in the course of the novel, uh, we, we are exposed to a number of uh, the, the prisoners uh, as well as life in, in that Soviet prison. And most importantly, there are, are his reflections uh, which can steer us also to, to reflect on uh, his you know, becoming a, a, a victim uh, of something that he helped create. Uh, this was one of the chief models for this character was uh, Bukharin, who was himself uh, purged by Stalin in, in the late 1930s. And this edition has an introduction by Michael Scammell that also offers uh, some uh, very nice historical background. In addition to uh, the novel itself, at the end, there's an appendix uh, of the tr part of the trial transcript from what I think we can reasonably describe as a show trial of Bukharin um, in 1938, which is only a couple of years or about a year or so before Kessler actually authored his novel. And uh, it's amazing. It's strikingly similar in terms of the modes of interaction with the state prosecutor. And so it, it's a interesting addition to the uh, fictional work, this nonfiction trial transcript. Absolutely. And I think what, what fascinated Kessler and what shocked so many people who had been sympathetic to uh, leftist causes that led to, you know, and, and they'd been sympathetic to the Soviet Union. And then many wound up, many prominent uh, European leftists and also in the U.S. wound up as apologists uh, for the Stalin regime up to a point. And Kessler himself uh, was a disaffected uh, communist. Um, and uh, I think what, what shocked a lot of people was the idea that someone like a Bukharin would confess that they would confess to what were obviously to having committed what were obviously trumped up uh, crimes and you know in, invented uh, espionage or accusations of trying to poison Lenin or you name it and why did they confess and of course the first the gut reaction was to say well they were obviously tortured in prison but Kessler was interested in something else. And here we have a character who is not going to yield to torture. And his, his interrogators realize this, especially there are, one of the interrogators himself falls victim to the purge. I won't devote too much of the plot. But why is he going to confess? And, and he, he reasons himself into this, this confession. And that's, I think, the Bukharin transcript at the end of the book uh, is an example of this. Uh, in other words, they are so committed to this cause. And perhaps also to save someone to save their family, there may be other motives, but it's also possible that their very commitment to this cause leads them to believe that they have that they have uh, dug a hole from which they themselves, an ideological hole from which they cannot escape. And so they are ensnared in their own thinking. And their only logical consequence is to go along and defend the cause that they had been advancing for so long.
I too was struck by the lack of torture in the book. Uh, the only torture or something even close to it seems to be the deprivation of sleep that Rubashov experiences uh, throughout the book. But nevertheless, he's never actually physically uh, coerced into saying anything. He does it of apparently his own volition. And as the Scammell introduction uh, indicates, this may have been uh, a, a point that and of course, we, I, I don't think we, at least there's no indication that we know exactly why Kessler uh, depicted it this way. But nevertheless, it seems to be that even at the end, when death seems to be the inevitable outcome for someone like Rubashov and others like him, that this kind of archetypal character is still at heart trying to give meaning to their lives. And maybe this is the last service that they do for the Communist Party. Yes, exactly. And uh, I think that that that's back to this idea of commitment and, and, and to what extent they may or may not have become blinded to the excesses that very ideological commitment led to is, of course, uh, one of the main subjects in, in the novel. And the the tragedy, I think, at the heart of this figure is that he is he does have this awareness and so he's battling within himself and if, if it weren't for the fact that he's com a committed atheist uh we, we could talk about uh his soul a, a battle for his soul as it were but it's but it's a, a kind of communistic battle for the, the ideological soul as you mentioned earlier, there's not much of what we would think of as action in this. This is not a thriller from the Cold War. Rather, this is what I suppose we would today, today describe as a psychological novel where we explore the motivations of the chief character and uh, the, he only encounters a very few um, ancillary characters that help propel the plot along. I, was no, I thought it was notable that in part of in one of his uh, Rubashov's recollections, uh, he recalls seeing a Pieta from a museum. And can you explain what you think might be the purpose for that imagery and that uh, sometimes sporadic uh, reference that he makes to the having seen that in the museum at one point? Well, he recalls a meeting because one of his duties. Uh, as a in his position in the in the party, and he had a very he had a very high position, not necessarily within the government, but within the party. And the party uh, had in the nineteen thirties, the party was supporting communist parties through the common turn throughout the world, and especially in Europe, and especially in places like Germany or Western Europe. Um, and he was in charge of some of these foreign, uh, foreign efforts. Uh, and in this meeting that he's, he's recalling, there's, there's a man who, by, it, it, we have to have a, a, a historical snapshot in 
the 1930s, Germany, in the, at the onset of the 1930s, the German Communist Party was very strong. And of course, the, the battling that then went on between the, the communists and the nascent Nazi party was, was, was very much in the news. Um, uh, as we know, the, the Nazis won and they, they decimated, they, they, one, of the first, one of their first acts was to round up communists and send them to concentration camps or, or murder them. Uh, it was, the, the communist party was in shambles and yet, and yet, the directive coming from Moscow, and Moscow had the, the supreme was the supreme command of the Comintern. The directives continued to be uh, very, very much at odds with the reality of the situation. So, here you have Rubashov is going to discipline someone who had broken party discipline, and to break party discipline was uh, an infraction worthy of, of being expelled from the party and in the case or being exposed as a, a, as a communist in Nazi Germany, which would be tantamount to a death sentence. And so he realizes what's going to happen when he, as a result of his disciplining this, this man, uh, but he's in a, he's in a museum and he catches this image of this, the Pietà and that, and, but he can't quite see the entire uh, painting, and he's trying to. Th th there's a, some solace in that painting, and of course, it goes back to a, a religious image. Uh, and, and I think that the the idea that he hasn't quite seen the entire picture. We could take that as a metaphor. Uh, we could also take the awareness of. Uh, of the imagery, the, the meaning of the Pietà, and we could we could look for uh, you know some underlying you know consciousness on on Rubashov's part, um, you know that that it, that will reappear in the book as he examines many of his deeds from a different point of morality, from a, from a different moral compass than simply. Did it serve the interests of the party or not? And possibly the hope of redemption? Possibly, yes, exactly. Now, the cliche about writing is to write what you know. And as you mentioned earlier, Kessler himself had been a member of the Communist Party. Uh, but also, as was indicated in the introduction by Mr. Scammell, he had essentially been a Communist Party agent for a time during the Spanish Civil War and later when he returned to Spain to cover the war as a journalist, he was actually imprisoned, and it indicates or suggests that he himself had feared actually being executed as some of his fellow prisoners had been. Um, oh, does, yes, yes. Yeah. The, does this, uh, this certainly gives a, uh, probably a realistic disposition in portraying the psychological disposition of Rubashov. Absolutely. It makes it very real, uh, and and when you're describing a novel from a, what, what's in a cell, there are so few things in a cell, but the tactile presence of this cell is very important. And that was one of uh, my hopes in, in translating the novel that was to also be able to translate that, that tactile presence of these 
prison conditions. He also, among his fellow prisoners, were people who developed this, used this, this ancient prison means of communication, tapping on the cell wall, which figures prominently in the novel. And it it's, lends another kind of dimension to the book, I think, uh, the different types of communication, uh, the, the, the communication among prisoners, the communication from the guards, you know, who, who's sympathetic, who isn't, and what, what can you do, what can you convey through tapping? What kind of emotion can you convey through tapping? I mean, you know, right now we, we sometimes look at each other wearing masks in the, in the, in the supermarket and our, our faces are, are diminished, but we're still conveying things with our eyes. Well, imagine you're just tapping through a wall and, and how can you, we, we always find ways to express some uh, emotion to our communication. And uh, that's a fascinating part of the book, I think. That's right. As you mentioned, uh, we're wearing masks. We're recording this interview in March, mid-March of 2021, and we are still in the midst of the pandemic uh, and the expectation, sometimes requirement, that people wear masks in different settings. And so you're, you're quite right that there's this isolated uh, feel based on the infrastructure that we live in. And certainly, Rubashov and his fellow prisoners were kept in isolation. They're not supposed to talk to each other. They do go out into the exercise yard, but even then, they even though they're uh, physically in greater proximity to each other, they're not supposed to communicate. And so, uh, on the one hand, we get a sense for the the isolation that one experiences uh, in this prison context. At the same time, you had mentioned earlier that one of his interrogators, uh, he goes by the name of Ivanov in the book, he interrogates him for a time. He's actually a former colleague of Rubashov's when they were both prominent in the party, and now he's his interrogator, and it's not giving uh, the ending away at all to note that Ivanov himself experiences some of the arbitrary um, prosecutions and persecutions that the party can exact on its members. And it seems to me that this is another element of the, the Soviet Communist Party that um, Kessler wanted to convey, which is how the revolution really began to eat its own through the show trials. Yes, I, and it, it, it's important to note Rubashov was also a leader in the civil war. And the image that is uh, that comes up repeatedly, and, and, and here a literal image, is of the, the 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 party leaders and the partisan leaders uh, during the civil war. And Rubashov was a hero uh, in the civil war, and Ivanov was uh, also very active. And Ivanov had suffered. Uh, a, a wound and, and had to have a leg amputated and Rubashov had, had basically uh, saved him by telling him he had to, you know, he could don't think about committing suicide and you'll, you'll get through this. And, and now the tables, we, we go forward many, many years, the civil wars long over the Soviet state had been established and Ivanov, who was an old colleague from the war is now sitting across the, interrogator's table from Rubashov and basically saying to Rubashov, I'm not going to let you commit suicide either. <laughs> so, so that's an interesting twist. 
but yes, as the as the uh, novel progresses, uh, we, we discover uh, through a series of these these flashbacks as well uh, the the backstory of of the party. Uh, we can, can piece it together, and the warning that in their in their belief in the infallibility of their cause, the, many of these party leaders were unaware that they were also setting up a system that could be so easily uh, corrupted that their ideological track uh, seemed to be clear, but the, 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 the train could be so easily derailed um, by one person. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, what, what happened. It seems to me that um, it would have been perhaps difficult to know what motivated people to act within the party. It might have been ideological enthusiasm, but also there's this ever apparently ever-present fear of your fellow party members. And so you know, the conformity that is, and we see this even today, of course, in places like mm -hmm. uh, North Korea and China and other dictatorial regimes, wherein conformity is an expectation and fear is perhaps, or no doubt, present or omnipresent through people's lives. And it reminded me of, a, I read a biography of uh, Dmitry Sostakovich <laughs> and his experiences uh in the Soviet state, he was in Leningrad during uh, the war and the, during the siege, siege of Leningrad. Yes, he was. And um, he had to, uh, I recall one incident, he had to report, uh, and he feared that he was going to be arrested when he reported to this uh, uh, central governmental agency in Leningrad during the siege. And he waited and waited and waited, and he was told to come back another day because they couldn't get to him. They were going to interview him. And he feared being arrested. So he comes back on that next appointed day and he waits again and he goes up and he finally has the gumption to go up and ask where the person that's going to talk to him is. And they said, oh, uh, never mind that he was arrested this morning. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I think which sounds like an absurdist play, right? It, it does. And the absurdities, of course, of the system were, were later uh, captured by, by many writers. But this is interesting because it's such an early uh, depiction of this with Rubashov and the Rubashovs and the Ivanovs, the old guard, I think, uh, had because they, they were part of a group that had set this in motion. And for them, their actions, they had debated, they were steeped in philosophy and history. Uh, and they debated about what, what, what policies to, uh, to implement. And the, as that generation was killed off, they were replaced with, in the novel, the, the character Gletkin, whose very name sounds <laughs> kind of oddly um, uh, like an automaton. Um, they were replaced by these conformers, these, these people who were simply... Uh, brainwashed by the party. And I think there's where that fear that, that, that you're talking about uh, is so evident um, as that, as Stalin's uh, reign continued, the, the fear uh, disseminated throughout 
the land in ways that, that it had never uh, done before. Because in the 1920s, when the party was, um, after the Civil War, there was this blossoming of um, this kind of explosion in the arts. Um, and there, there were lots of uh, free, free thinking ideas. I mean, the, the sexual mores were uh, also, uh, the old sexual mores were challenged in, a, in, in many ways. And you had uh, people like Mayakovsky, uh, you know, standing and declaiming verses in, uh, in big stadiums. Uh, you know, imagine that a poet in a, in a, in a soccer stadium declaiming a verse, you know, that's, uh, but that, that exuberance uh, had all but uh, vanished uh, by, by the late 1920s, early 1930s, as Stalin consolidated his power. So let's switch gears now and talk about your role in this translation. You are the translator of this, and there is an interesting history to the different versions of this that exist. Um, before we talk about that history, let's talk about you and how you came to be selected as the translator. Well, I owe that to Michael Scammell, who, who contacted me. I think he had been in touch with people at, at Columbia where he teaches, and, and they had given uh, him my name. And so he approached me, and as it happened, I was very familiar with the book, having read it in high school, and always felt it was a, an important book. And so I, I, I leapt at the chance to, to, to translate it and um, am indebted to him and also the, the staff at Scribner, um, who, who were very gracious, and uh, uh, everyone was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a fun project, if, if fun is the right word for a novel about a Bolshevik uh, in a prison. And how long did it take you uh, from beginning to end to do the actual translation? Uh, several months. Uh, I, I can't put my finger on it exactly, but but usually it takes me um, several months to a year, uh, depending on what else is happening. And so this was originally published in 1940 based upon a translation of Kessler's girlfriend, who was an English woman, Daphne Hardy. And we learned from Scammell's introduction that she had apparently, thankfully, uh, begun a translation without permission or even the original, originally, uh, the knowledge of Kessler while she was uh, cohabiting with him in France in 1939 and 1940. That's right. Kessler, of course, uh, was not going to stay in Nazi Germany. Um, you know, he, he was, although he was born in Hungary, he, 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 he was, his German was his main language, uh, for most of his early life. And, uh, in his writing, um, as a, as a, as a leftist, as a Jewish leftist, as a, uh, as a, a critic, as someone who'd been in Spain, uh, he would have been a prime target for the Nazi henchmen. So he's, living in Paris uh, with Daphne Hardy, and then the war breaks out. The Germans are in, right there at the uh, coming, invading France, and then next thing you know, they're, they're right outside Paris, so he has to flee again, and they pick up everything, and they rush away, and in the commotion, he lost the original manuscript 
Meanwhile, she had uh, completed a translation that she sent off to publishers in Britain. He sent something, he thought, to his publisher in Switzerland, uh, but it was all lost. Uh, and at least so we thought. So the book comes out in English uh, in 1940, I think, and then decades later, and, and the only, and that Daphne Hardy's translation is the only version that the world knows. And so it was back translated into German and the English translation served as the, the main source for all other translations of the novel. Until a few years ago, a graduate student researching in a Swiss archive discovered a manuscript. And this was the manuscript that Kessler had sent to Switzerland. It had been buried in, in a publisher's archive and it had some markings on it, some changes. And the Germans used that to reissue the novel uh, based on the original manuscript, or based on the original German instead of the back translation. And that German edition is what I translated uh, for this, th this current version. And the, are there distinct differences between the hardy English translation and the original German translation that you translated? There are a few, they're, they're mostly minor differences. Um, I think uh, that there are different choices as, as, a, as a translator that, that I made. Um, there are, however, some significant differences in the, in the, in the versions. Um, there is, for instance, uh, a, a, a little passage on masturbation in, in the prison that was not present in the original English. Um, there are differences of translation, such as in the, in Daphne Hardy's version, which as Michael uh, Scammell has pointed out, has served us very well. And it's, um, I believe that you know great novels uh, deserve many readings, and a translation is, after all, a, a type of reading. Uh, it, there, she divides the chapters: the first hearing, the second hearing, the third hearing. Well, these hearings were really interrogations. The German word "verhör" is is really an interrogation. So there are differences such as that that are more differences of, of translation. And I also was trying to trying to, to speed the novel along while capturing some of the uh, sharpness uh, of, of the prose. Um, and the, the reader will have to <laughs> decide how well I managed that. But, but the, the novel itself has a different meaning now than it did when it first came out. You know, it's, 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 it, it has a, a, there are so many layers of, of meaning uh, since that it has acquired since then, uh, you mean it's a, it has a different meaning in terms of the context of the Cold War and what we learn about how the Soviet Union actually operated that might not have been fully understood or well known in well, 1940. That, that's correct, and and I think also it's it's almost it, it's moved into as the events have receded in time, or as we have advanced in time further away from the events, the, the novel perhaps 
functions uh, more as a literary piece and an inspiration for reflection as well as a, a, a study of those times. And as an instrument for reflection, it applies also more broadly. So in some ways, it, it's, it's moved from, I think, the interpretations when it first came out with the show trial still happening, made it fo very, very sharply focused on, on, that, on, on those events, those current events. And now we look for, well, what can this mean for us today? Where do we see uh, ideas becoming entrenched as ideology? Where do we see people with the best intentions uh, becoming uh, falling victim uh, to their to, to to their own actions, uh, where they justify actions that ultimately contradict the very ideals that they had set out to defend, and this is something that we see every day today. Uh, and I think the the novel then serves more, perhaps has more metaphoric uh, meaning today than it did then. And certainly by design, this is not, as you mentioned, the names uh, essentially sound Russian or Slavic in some sense, uh, but it is not expressly rooted in Stalinist uh, Russia or so the Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin himself is never referred to. It's uh, number one. Number one. That's right. Uh, right. Who, who is the uh, leader. Um and so that that in and of itself takes it somewhat out of time and makes it more abstract and exactly. symbolic. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so I was I was struck by um, Scammell's introduction and what you just said a few minutes ago about you read it in high school and how this was a widely read book uh, in the United States. And in terms of its publication history, it was a book of the month club selection. Uh, also, Whitaker Chambers praised it, uh, the former communist who had become uh, outspoken against communism. And I was struck by that because I had never heard of this book until after college. It was never assigned to me in college. Uh, it was never assigned in high school. Uh, whereas George Orwell's 1984 um, was definitely something I was well aware of. And so comment upon that. Uh, was this assigned to you in high school or is it something you read during your high school years? It was assigned. It was assigned reading. And a, a, a lot of high schools, I think, uh, had it as assigned reading. And uh, that may date me. Uh, but I think that it was the, that book of the month selection, by the way, really launched, the, <laughs> really get, launched its career, I think. Uh, but in the... Um, Oh, as late as I think into the 80s, it was frequently found on high school uh, curricula. And uh, but I my guess is that as um, the Cold War uh, became softer, achieved softer contours, that I think the displacement, it's interesting you mentioned Orwell, uh, or Orwell became kind of the go-to book, uh, and, and this one receded a bit. It may also be because the Kessler book does have these ruminations which are fairly philosophical in nature, and 
so it's it's a more difficult read, uh, more challenging, I should say, read uh, than the Orwell. And the Orwell is so uh, metaphorical, whereas this reading Darkness at Noon is your your reading is greatly enhanced if you know some of the history. So um, it it's I think um, you, you probably read Orwell in English class, um, but what where do where do English class classes and history classes diverge in, in the curriculum? And that's a, uh, and I think also the way that curricula have have changed over the years is a, is a important uh, subject. I mean, there, to what extent historical, you know, has, what is our historical awareness and how is how does that change over, over time? I want to ask you uh, briefly about the philosophy of being a translator. Um, I've read of the so-called tyranny of the translator, and I'm curious what your opinion of this um, debate is in regard to how quote unquote, literal you should be versus what degree of license uh, in terms of choices that you have uh, and how that affected your translation of this, but also other works as well. Well, um, in my mind, every book is different and I don't have a, I don't have an ideology about translation. And I try to listen to the voice or voices of a given book. And I listen until I hear it in the original. And then I reimagine it in English. And the way that that usually happens is um, I just sit with it for a while and, and so the, 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 I'm, I'm thinking of the of the register of the book, the tone. What is the quality? What are the uh, what are the words that place this in its time? Uh, what about matters of class? As speech reveals class, and so the the question of literalness, because. I think we're, we're striving to convey something just like the novel itself is 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 more than the, the words on the page. There's the the emotions that it evokes, the thoughts that it inspires, and can I capture that what that energy in the book, and how best can I capture that energy? Well, that is the that is true to the original, and sometimes being true to the original means also recognizing that that energy is best served by uh, by re reordering a sentence, but or even a paragraph. Um, in some cases, uh, I've worked with authors who are very understanding, and we've agreed to cut out. Uh, a paragraph or substitute something. I'm, you're going to lose something in, in one place. Well, you can counterbalance that by adding uh, something to make up for that in another place. So 
I, I don't, I'm definitely not on the side of the uh, word for word literal uh, rendering. And so um, sometimes a translation is more than just a translation. It's also kind of an edited work, different from the original. Right. And we get into uh, a discussion about where does a translation, you know, how to define a translation, what is an adaptation. And, but I think that it's a, a, a reimagining. Uh, I, I would compare it to uh, a conductor. Uh, you, you're working uh, obviously with, in a different medium, but uh, you know when you, uh, you you go to the symphony, you, you hear um, Brahms' Third Symphony, and you're, you're, every time you hear it, it's going to be different. Um, obviously, with a printed version, we don't have as many versions of Kessler's book as we do versions of, of Brahms' Third Symphony. But uh, but the, the the conductor is trying to um, take this 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 work and convey it. Uh, in a way that gets that conveys the uh, the the gist of the uh, of the piece, um, and and so I think that's what uh, that's how I would view it, perhaps. Well, lastly, I want to ask you about your own experiences uh, during the Cold War. It's my understanding you had spent some time in Eastern Europe, and so you have a little bit of personal familiarity firsthand with uh, the. Um, dictatorial governments in Eastern Europe. Can you give us a little bit of that uh, explanation for your background there? Uh, yes, I spent several years in, in Poland in the last years of the communist regime. And by that point, it was um, uh, obviously, um, uh, it, it, as the, as the, my friends from South America would say, it was, you know, dicta blanda, not dictadura, but it was not, you know, it was not the oppressive, it was a different. It was a soft dictatorship, let's say, or a soft, uh, corrupt government. It was a government without a mandate, basically, and this was following martial law in Poland. And there had been a a coup, and the Jaruzelski had taken over. So, and the party was in power, and the party did resort to its uh, to certain dirty tricks. And you could see it. And when I first got there, there were still. Uh, demonstrations on the streets that were being broken up um, uh, with uh, vigor um, by these riot police that the communist government had uh, sent in. Um, and they were mostly you know, young people who were not so educated. They were uh, often, they'd been given alcohol and given their marching orders and uh, but yeah, I, I experienced uh, kind of the tail end of of, of that, and um, I was directing plays. And every every time I uh, put on a play in those years, I would have to meet with the a, a censor, someone from the office of censorship, you know, which is uh, kind of an, it's, it's it's amusing uh, to, to relate that now, but. Um, uh, so I did. I did indeed have some experience, and also I think certainly I never experienced anything remotely like like this. But the vestiges of this remained in some of the language, and also the corruption of the government, the the arbitrariness by which someone in, let's say, you're eligible for a scholarship, and someone in the Ministry of Education doesn't like you, and then they 
decide, well, I don't like this person. They're not going to get that scholarship. Uh, you know, th there's no, it was just, there was so much um, uh, basic you know, corruption. Uh, and, and the system was bankrupt in, in, in many different ways. Uh, there were, however, uh, also some things that that, that 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 system had somehow supported, I would call it the, the babies in the communist bathwater, such as, uh, an, in, at least in some places, there was a, uh, ongoing support for the arts. There were some things that they, you know, that, that, that those governments did accomplish in the name of this or that ideology, but it doesn't, it certainly does not excuse their uh, their fundamental uh, bankruptcy. And of course, these were always art that were in support of the state. No, not necessarily. Um, and there it, it varies. We tend to think of the communist bloc as, as one that, that everything was the same. But at least in Poland, uh, the, uh, the after the original solidarity, the first wave of solidarity, and then the subsequent imposition of martial law, the, the theaters were often allowed to uh, put on plays that were, were quite critical. And, and there was this interesting interaction, uh, writers and the, between the writers and the, 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 the state, uh, the, so satire became very advanced and often the, the the plays i think that the government was actually fairly clever because they were allowing this whereas in places like east germany that they were there was the censorship was uh more rigid but these these plays i mean i remember going to a, a performance of uh beaumarchais uh beaumarchais marriage of figaro and the actor uh, read a line and, and made a word sound like valenza like lech valenza and there, this titter went through the audience. Now, now that play, there was really nothing. <laughs> there was nothing worrisome to the state in that production, but but it kind of allowed the audience to let off a little steam. And I think that the powers that be realized that. And um, so there was an interesting act. And, and in, there are many uh, thoughts about the the role of censorship and how, it, for some writers, some writers develop their entire oeuvre. Uh, against the censor and when the system changed their their writing became less important they didn't have anyone to write against anymore um, others um, uh, were able to to move beyond that um, and so that it's a very interesting uh, study but that would be that would be a, a, another discussion i think well the book is arthur kessler's darkness at noon and we've been joined today by its translator for the latest edition of it, recently rediscovered in 2015 and published in 2019, Philip Baim. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure talking with you.